of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in this kingdom. When all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he, what he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is the word of the Lord. The writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall. That's a phrase that you've likely heard before. It comes from this story, a 2,600 or so year old story. That phrase refers, of course, to to a warning sign that something unpleasant, that something unexpected is about to happen. 
For example, I have a friend that I've known for years who worked in the late 90s in Houston at a major corporation and uh, in 2002 or one maybe transferred out of Houston to another city for a different corporation. And he moved because in part, he saw a lot of what he considered to be really weird, fraudulent accounting practices and, and strange business transactions going on. Anybody want to take a guess at what the company was that he worked for? Enron, of course. You could say he saw the writing on the wall by God's grace and got out before Enron filed what to that point in American history was the largest bankruptcy ever, $11 billion. They also took down with them Arthur Anderson, what was then one of the big five accounting firms in America. You could have said he saw the writing on the wall. Now that phrase is found here in our story this morning in Daniel 5. One of the great stories in the Bible, as so much of Daniel is, this king, Belshazzar, literally sees writing on the wall, and the writing warns of judgment. It warns of coming judgment. So this is a chapter, I'm so glad you're able to hear it along with me, that warns us. A lot of the Bible does that, friends. It, it warns us of God's justice and God's judgment against evil and against idolatry. And it also urges us, it urges us to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and, and in faith while we can. So wrapped inside of this great story is really an urgent message. That's one of the beauties of the Christian scriptures. It tells stories uh, that can rival any storyteller ever. And yet within it, the Holy Spirit ministers to our hearts and encourages us to listen. Daniel 5 jumps us forward from Daniel 4 about 50 years. So Daniel is now an older man. And we see in verse 1 that the king is now this man, Belshazzar. Um, the text repeatedly tells us that he's Nebuchadnezzar's son. A, a better translation is that he's actually his descendant. He's actually his, I think, great, great grandson. Uh, we know from history that Belshazzar was actually the son of the final Babylonian king, a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus isn't in this story because he's no longer in what was then the capital of Babylon. He had moved down to what is now Saudi Arabia and lived there and left his son Belshazzar to sort of rule as the number two guy in his place in the capital city. Uh, we also know from history and from verse 31 that, that Babylon's day ruling the world is over. Uh, in fact, the next day it's going to end. The world's next great empire, Persia is actually literally at the doorstep when this story takes place. It's about 540 BC, and the Persians are about to conquer Babylon. They're about to take over the city. And so the historical context adds to our understanding of the story. Uh, these Babylonian elites, they're waiting to see what Persia is going to do as the Persian army prepares to siege the city. And interestingly enough, what do they do? They party, man. It's like that old REM song. It's the end of the world as we know it. And they feel fine, at least tonight. In the morning, they're not going to be doing so well. So the entire context of the story illustrates really the two great themes of this text. The two great themes of this text are first, the folly, the folly of sin. And secondly, the judgment of God. And both of those themes get access, we get access to them through, through the actions and through the character of this king, Belshazzar, and his interactions with Daniel. But like all of the Bible, uh, the wonder of the story invites us to, to consider our own lives. 
It invites us to consider our own lives. And so this morning, um, I don't want you to just listen to this story as a really good yarn that's been spun for you. I don't want you to just do an intellectual thought, in your, uh, intellectual thinking in your mind, but, but I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to, to minister to you and speak to you and to consider how this story shows our own lives in a greater reality. So, so let's hear from God this morning and look at two points. The folly of Belshazzar first, and second, the judgment of Belshazzar. So first, the folly the folly of Belshazzar. The Bible, especially the Old Testament wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, um, contrasts the way of wisdom with the way of folly. For example, Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is personified as a beautiful woman. And she says this, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. By me, wisdom, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. So that's wisdom. But on the other hand, listen to the lady folly speak. Proverbs 9. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The author of this story really paints a masterful picture of folly through Belshazzar's actions and character. Now, remember what a great leader, if you've been with us the last few weeks, Nebuchadnezzar in many ways was, Belshazzar's ancestor. Nebuchadnezzar had built the hanging gardens of Babylon. He had conquered much of the known world. Yes, he had been proud. We saw that last week, but he was without question a great king. Not not so Belshazzar. All Belshazzar can put together is a great party which he seems to do in verse one. And so I want to show you from the story four ways that Belshazzar's folly is displayed. First, we see his folly in his senselessness. Senselessness. Look at verse one. He has to know what's coming tomorrow, by the way. Uh, An army doesn't sneak up to the gates of a city without the people in the city knowing that the army is there. The Persian armies camped outside of his walls. But but all he does, verse one, is, is get hammered. Verse 1, he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, the text emphasizes that Belshazzar is the king drinker here. He's the chief partier. He is the one in charge of the revelry. He doesn't prepare his people. He doesn't lead them in anything except for getting drunk. He, He acts senselessly in that he only lives for the moment. That's a very American idea. He only lives for the moment. It's one of the great temptations of our age to live in the moment, to to not worry about today or tomorrow. Maybe you're doing this. Maybe you say to yourself things like, I'll get serious about faith uh, when I get a little older, when I start having kids, we'll settle down, when I'm more established in my career. But for now, I'm going to do me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live life. I'm going to enjoy things. I'm going to just be fully present in the moments. That's very, very common. 
might be something you're doing right now or have done in the past. And, and the scripture tells us here and in many other places, listen, that is senseless. It's foolish. Why is it foolish? Because you never know what will happen to you tomorrow. You don't even know what's going to happen to you in five minutes. Jesus in the Gospels tells us a story. It's the parable of the rich fool, and that parable parallels Belshazzar in many ways. Listen to what Jesus says. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and the rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for years. You're set, soul. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. But then God, boom, enters the picture and said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I'm reminded of um, the great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who when he was a young man, developed many resolutions for how he was going to live his life. And he wrote those down. And one resolution said this, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. In other words, he wants to live as best he can now with a perspective of eternity in heaven. Now, Belshazzar is the exact opposite of that and therefore shows his folly, senselessness. Second, we see his blasphemy. Look at what he does. He takes these vessels that his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from Jerusalem, and he uses them basically for the kegger, right, as cups for the party. And, and there's no question what's going on here in Belshazzar's mind. This is um, a power play. It's a power play. Think about it. The way you treat someone's things or possessions says a lot about the way you think about that person. So, for example, if you come home from work one day and you find all your stuff out on the front porch and the door locked, that tells you a lot about how things are going in your marriage, doesn't it? If you try to go to work on a Monday morning and your key card doesn't work anymore and you finally get the security guard to let you into your office and your desk is cleared out, and uh, there's a pink slip right there on your desk. Well, you know what your well, former employer thinks about you. The way you treat someone's stuff says a lot about what you think about that person. That's what Belshazzar is doing. He's saying, I'm going to show you Jews and your puny little Jewish God who is really in charge. Go get me the temple vessels. And, and we're going to party with those. Belshazzar is not acting in ignorance here. He's doing it with, with full knowledge and intent. Belshazzar's heart, like all human hearts apart from God's grace, is a factory, always conjuring up new ways to rebel against God. And, and now that wine, which it tends to do, has loosened him up some, it's all coming out. He's blaspheming God. Third, his foolishness is seen in his idolatry. Verse 4, they drank wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, stone. So not only does Belshazzar and all those people partying with them, they, they don't just mock the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they worship false gods along with it. Complete and total fabrications. Now, 
Listen, it's easy for us sophisticated, progressive, postmodern Americans to listen to these ancient stories and think, that's so quaint. Um, We assume that these practices are just vestiges of an ancient world. We cannot picture ourselves doing anything remotely resembling what we read about here. But listen, this is how the Holy Spirit speaks to you through the scripture. He's inviting you to consider your own life to consider how perhaps blasphemy and idolatry aren't as foreign to you as you think. What this story tells us and the Bible everywhere tells us is is that the default output of the human heart as it exists in rebellion against God is idolatry. You and I, we're not using holy vessels for an unholy purpose, but we do blaspheme. Anytime we take what the Lord has given us and use it only for ourselves. And we do engage in idolatry, in false worship. Anytime we rely and depend on and desire God's gifts more than we rely and depend on and desire God himself. So think, what might that look like in your life? Well, what did you work hardest for this week? What are you chasing after? What are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? Security? Status? Money? What things could you acquire that would excite you the most? And what things, if you were to lose them, would terrify you the most? Are are they related to the Lord at all? Whatever those things are, those are the things that you most love. Those are the resident gods of your heart. Maybe it's beauty, your terrified of losing it. Maybe it's reputation. You're terrified of losing it. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your family. All these are good things, but when we make them ultimate things, they become bad things. You see, all of our hearts have a a nonstop propensity towards doing exactly what Belshazzar and his people do, blaspheming and worshiping things that aren't the one true God. And thus, sin makes fools of us all. The last thing we see that shows Belshazzar's foolishness, his folly, is his arrogance. Look at what happens. The queen, this is probably the queen mother, appears in verse 10. And uh, the hand has written these words on the wall that no one can interpret. And so the queen mother shows up and she reminds Belshazzar of Daniel. And, and you can almost picture her here. The, the look on her face is certainly one of just disgust, right? She remembers Nebuchadnezzar. She's been around the block a few times. And she sees Belshazzar and the way he's leading or not leading. And she's like, oh. My goodness. You know, Belshazzar, if you would ever listen to any of the lessons you've been taught, you might remember that there turns turns out to be a guy in the city that's pretty good at this sort of thing. He's interpreted dreams before, but you've completely forgotten about him. You should bring in Daniel. And so Belshazzar listens and Daniel appears. And notice Belshazzar's words to him are just dripping with arrogance. Verse 13, look at what he says. You're that Oh, what's your name? Daniel. You're Daniel. One of the exiles. You know, the people that we conquered. You've been my slave here for 50 years. We, we know what that's like, don't we? We've certainly seen people do this. I know I've done this before. And I bet you have too. When you meet someone that you know you've met before, but you pretend you haven't met them before, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. It's just a total arrogant power play. That's exactly what Belshazzar is doing right here to Daniel. You're that guy. And he's putting him down, acting like he's 
a nobody. And, and then notice he seems to doubt that Daniel can really do anything to help him. Verse 16, if you can do this and, and believe it, I'm pretty skeptical, Daniel. If you can do this, I'll give you my awesome purple cape. And Daniel's like, I could care less about your cape. I've been around the block a few times myself. Keep your cape. I'll tell you what the dream means. Actually, he gets the cape at the end of the story anyways, which is one of my favorite parts of the story. So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was proud for sure. But at least Nebuchadnezzar respected Daniel. As he says, he was one in whom the wisdom of the gods resides. But but Belshazzar is just so arrogant that he's completely blinded to any good counsel or any good advice. Belshazzar's character is the paradigmatic fool. And so I want you to ask yourself, am I listening to what the Bible's saying to me today? Left to ourselves, we are nothing but fools like Belshazzar. Now, we like to put ourselves in Bible stories. That's a good thing to do. But we always put ourselves in Daniel's place. No, 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 no. Slow down. First, you've got to go to Belshazzar's place. We can be senseless. We can be idolatrous. We can be arrogant. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he wasn't speaking too strongly in Romans 1 when he writes that everyone, Jew or Gentile, apart from the love of God and Jesus, are, quote, Romans 1, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and inventors of evil. What does this story show us? It shows us that the dark truth lurking in each of our lives is that we've gone astray from the way of wisdom. And we all, like Belshazzar, have been weighed in the divine scales of justice. And like Belshazzar, we've all been found wanting. And like Belshazzar, we all are going to face judgment. Let's look at that second. We see Belshazzar's folly Secondly, the story tells us about Belshazzar's judgment. So Daniel shows up and he makes this speech. Now this sounds like, this is like Daniel's most kind of formally prophetic moment. He sounds like uh, Amos or one of the judgment oracle prophets here. And, And notice when he speaks to Belshazzar that he emphasizes how Belshazzar has refused the opportunity to learn from his own story, to learn from his own history, his own family of origin, you might say. He, he retells Nebuchadnezzar's story, the story we looked at last week, right, in verses 18 through 22. He said, Nebuchadnezzar's pride took Nebuchadnezzar down a bad path. And then notice the end, 22, 23. Listen to what Daniel says to Belshazzar. You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Here's the key. Though you knew all this, but you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar had heard stories undoubtedly, about how the Lord had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. A family does not quickly forget such a story as Daniel 4. But Belshazzar ignored it. He didn't listen to the warnings. And beyond that, he went way past the sins of Nebuchadnezzar. He directly assaults Yahweh through his profaning these vessels from the temple. And and he has no excuse. That's, That's part of the point. No excuse for acting the way he acted. He he knew he was playing with fire and he flew into it headlong anyway. Now, here's the hard news. Every single one of us sitting in this room is much better informed than Belshazzar was 
of what God's standards are. Every single one of us has been given the revelation of God through creation and through our own consciences, and more significantly, through the scriptures. God's law has been made known to us directly. This reminds me of another of Jesus's parables. He tells another story in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. Some of you might know this story. Both of these men died. There's a rich man and Lazarus, who was a beggar, who had sat outside the home of the rich man. The rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus, the poor man, goes to heaven. And they're able to communicate with one another between heaven and hell. And Abraham is there sort of as their intermediary. And the rich man from hell, because he's in agony, says, Hey, Abraham, go tell Lazarus to go back as maybe a, an angel or in some sort of vision and warn my brothers to listen to the gospel when it's preached so that they don't come here into this agony. And, and what does Abraham say to the rich man? He says this, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, maybe if someone from the dead goes to them, if they see a ghost, then they'll repent. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The message to the rich man is the same as the message was to Belshazzar. And it's the same as the message is to me. And it's the same as the message is to you. We should know. I didn't know is not an excuse before God. We have no excuse to not repent and turn to God in faith. And so can I just, knowing I'm guilty of this as well, humbly ask you to listen. Listen to God as he speaks to you. If you're a child here this morning, if you're a child, children, listen, if your parents read you the Bible, even if they're like really inconsistent at it, if they read you the Bible, if they pray for you, if they talk to you about the gospel, if they bring you to church, listen, listen, listen to your parents. If you're in worship every week, hearing the scriptures taught to you, don't ignore them. Listen. If you're reading the scriptures, which I hope you are, and and you feel conviction for sin as you read, that's the Holy Spirit. You should stop in that moment. You should confess your sin. You should repent. You should turn away. Listen, it is God's kindness, kindness that's intended to lead you into repentance. God wants to draw you back to him and the fullness of his love. Listen, Belshazzar doesn't listen. And so finally, Daniel interprets the writing on the wall, kind of the the highlight apex moment of the story, right? Verse 26, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, Belshazzar's killed Darius the Mede, verse 31, takes the kingdom from him. Now, those words that no one could understand in Aramaic, they can either be vocalized as nouns. If they're nouns, they're all referring to different units of measurement. It's more likely that they should be vocalized as verbs, meaning numbered, weighed, and divided. The point, either way, is that Belshazzar has been weighed. He's been weighed on the scales of God's justice and has been found wanting. 
Now, we all know, right, that that's how units of measurement were determined uh, for centuries and still are in some places. So you, you put a stone that you know what weighs one kilogram on one side of the scale, and you take the bag of flour that you want to buy one kilogram of flour, and you put it on the other side of the scale, and if the scale balances, you know you've got one kilogram of flour, you can finish your transaction and take your bag of flour home. But if the weight goes down and the flour goes up, you don't have enough flour and vice versa, Right? And, and we know that that's still a very common uh, image used for halls of justice. You can go to any major American or British city and see oftentimes on top of our courthouses, lady justice, blindfolded, often holding what? A scale in one hand and the sword of justice in the other. The point's clear. At least I hope it is for, for all of us. The message is that like Belshazzar, every single one of us, will be weighed on the scales of divine justice one day. We are all going to be asked if we measure up. Measure up to what standard? To the standard of God's holiness and righteousness. Hebrews chapter 9 says that it is destined for every person to die and then to face judgment. Galatians chapter 3 says that anyone who doesn't obey everything written in God's law is under a curse. The reality is none of us measure up. All of us are just like Belshazzar. We're all found wanting when we're weighed in the balances. And you know this is true. You know this is true of your life. I don't care if you think it's true of your spouse's life. I want you to know if it's true for your life. It's true if we're honest with ourselves that not only do we not weigh up to God's standard, we don't even weigh up to our own standards. I was thinking about my life this week. And I can tell you that many days of my life, I wake up and I set just internally, I'll think, today I'm going to do this. Uh, today I'm not going to try not to be grumpy with my kids. I'm going to try not to have harshness in my tone when I speak to my family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work really, really, really hard. And, and by noon, I've got the report card turned in and it's F minus minus. It's 0.0 GPA. I've, I can't measure up to even my own standards much less God's standard. And I think that we all know because God has given us a conscience that that is true for us. That's the message of Daniel 5. There's a day coming when you will be weighed in the balance by a perfectly righteous God and you're not going to measure up. But Daniel 5, thankfully, is not the end of the Bible. It's not the end of the story. In fact, it's begging us to see good news. And there is good news. There's great news. For those of us who've been weighed and found wanting, for people like me and you who just don't measure up, here's the good news. Rather than destroying us in judgment, God has sent us Jesus. And Jesus balances the scales. Jesus, you see, he had his own life weighed in the balance. And Jesus was found perfect and whole and complete, Jesus was able to fully meet every single one of the demands of God and his holiness. And, and the good news is that Jesus didn't just do that for himself. He, he did it for anyone who will come to God through connecting to him in faith. Jesus gives you his credit. Jesus gives you his perfection. Jesus gives you his holiness. Jesus 
alters the scales of justice in your favor in a way that makes sure that God is still just in paying sin what it deserves and that makes sure that you were pardoned because you've been given a righteousness that doesn't come from you, but that comes from him. What do you have to do? All you have to do is see what Belshazzar never saw that you can't measure up and to run and flee into Jesus in faith. That's the invitation of this story. The invitation is to see that Jesus loves you so much that he takes the judgment of God upon himself for you and that you can enter into his righteous and holy life simply by believing that it's true. Have you done that? Yeah, I know you've probably been around church a lot. I know you've, you've heard this Bible story. Have you entered into life in Christ by realizing that you don't measure up? and that you need someone else to give you their righteousness. It's available for you right now. All you have to do is turn away from sin and look to Christ for forgiveness, and he'll do it for you. Maybe you've done it a million times. You know what? Today should be time, one million one, to live a life of repentance, to live a life of, of looking to Christ, who is indeed our righteousness, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. Kevin introduced this great song, to us last week. I want to close just by reading a couple of the lines. It's basically Psalm 130. Um, I will wait for you is what it's called. And, and a couple of these verses are very relevant for Daniel 5. Listen to what we're about to sing. Were you to count my sinful ways, how could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone. Now he has come to make a way and God himself has paid the price that all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice. Listen, trust Jesus today and find healing. It's available for you. So come running to him. Let's believe together. Let's pray.